podglomerate original. The history of stand-up isn't just about the people. It's also about the places where comedy happens. The Good Club is a weird intangible. This sort of vibe just kind of lands in a room for a while. That was comedian Dana Gould, and, and what he said is our mission statement for this season. Last year, we looked back at the chronological history from vaudeville to today, to Netflix. But this season, we're going to look at scenes and venues and theaters and clubs and the crucial role they played in the development of modern stand-up. And we hear firsthand from some of the people who were there. So, welcome to the History of Stand-Up. Season 2. The show where comedian and professor Wayne Fetterman teaches us all a little bit more about the history of stand-up. With a lot of help from other people. And I'm your fellow student, Andrew Steven. We're going to go up the coast of Los Angeles to a city, they say, by the bay, where people leave their hearts, and that's San Francisco. So we're going to go back to 1976 and around... So we're, we're driving up the coast and heading back in time also. Exactly. And around that time, there was a comedian and impressionist named Jim Giovanni, who was the first comic to perform at a folk club called the Holy City Zoo. Why was it called the Holy City Zoo? Well, there was a city called Holy City. Yeah, down by Santa Cruz, and they had a little zoo, and it went bankrupt. And who I forget, Jason Cristobal, I think, owned the zoo, and he he bought all the furniture from from the zoo, and that's when he he put it in the uh, club there. So that was the that's how they got the name. That's comedian Larry Bubbles Brown. And the reason we're talking about this Holy City Zoo is because. That was the first of the big four comedy clubs that were the foundation of this burgeoning San Francisco comedy club scene. And right out of the gate came a meteor of comic invention named Robin Williams. My crowd were here tonight again, once again, my home. Hi, the Marin County people where I grew up. Mom's here, Mama. Mama, Oedipus, Medipus, I love you. Boy, well, I guess we should get to the show real quick. People are going, we paid good money now. <laughs> People Marin paid more than good money. They paid beyond money. <laughs> yes. Those people are so damn wealthy, they don't get the crabs. They get the lobsters. <laughs> this is Robin Williams performing at the Great American Music Hall in San Francisco. And one of the things he was known for early on was going out into the crowd and weaving his way amongst the people because he had this amazingly powerful voice. And then he would pretend to be a hairdresser or he would put on someone's coat or take a picture or go through their purse. It was a great showcase for his improvisational skills. I'm over here one second. I have to wander back. Thank, thank you. <laughs> oh, we're just going to work on this. We're going to tease it a little. Just look over. How about those 49ers? Do you think they're ever going to work again? I don't know. Let's look over Let's just look over here. Second. Okay, we're gonna put a little up here. Hare Krishna, Hare. Sorry, right now she's going, I worked all day on that. I went to a workshop one night where they had these stand-up comedians and I used to hang out the committee a lot and improvise with people there and I remembered some of the things I improvised and I tried them out that night and they worked really well. In the first five minutes it went great. So I thought, huh, this is so much easier. 
and the, then the reinforcement was immediate. So because of Robin, uh, the zoo was already gaining a reputation as this legendary club. I remember my feeling first seeing uh, the Holy City Zoo, which was mm -hmm. legendary by the time I got to San Francisco in 1978. Yeah, yeah, that was good. This is a clip of Kevin Pollack talking with Dana Carvey on his Kevin Pollack chat show. And I walked in and the place holds nine people, not much bigger than this studio. Yes. And I thought, really? This is the place mm -hmm. that's legendary? Holy City Zoo was really tight, too tight, too small, and uh, there was just huge compression. I mean, yeah. Michael Pritchard, who was 6'6", 280 pounds, it would really, the room would levitate. It was so rocking, yeah. Around this time, a local promoter by the name of Frank Kidder, who ran an open mic at the Intersection Coffee House, decides to do a comedy competition. And this is one of the things that makes San Francisco unique in the history of stand-up. So I moved out when I was 20, 19. Here's Dana Carvey again. And uh, we were just playing Risk, smoking pot. I was a busboy at the Holiday Inn. And I saw a thing in the paper, uh, live stand-up. I'd never seen that in the Chronicle at the uh, uh, La Salamandra on Telegraph Avenue in Berkeley. And so for some reason, I said, let's go over there. I recruited a couple friends. Right. We went and watched the show. It seemed so romantic to me. It's like Mark Miller came up, these comedians who I knew later. They'd come up, and I started making notes going, Hey, okay, uh, I had, you know, John Wayne having sex. You know, things I do for my friends. Well, up against the bedposts and spread them. You know, the hackiest <laughs> shit. And I just started writing it down like I could kill. Then they said, open mic. So I went up, and um, I instantly was bombing. But I started doing, well, moving right along, just a nervous interlude, and it became a catchphrase. And I got some laughs. Right. And so the guy said, it's your first time. You can come back and be my MC in two weeks. Your so, first time? Yeah, I was hired. Jesus. That's how I started. And then I would go on and off, picking up little gigs. I played uh, the old Spaghetti Factory. Sure. Uh, the Holy City Zoo a little bit. And then the competition came up. This was the second annual San Francisco International Open stand-up comedy competition in the fall of 1977. And you go through the rounds, and then Gil Krishner and I were separated by a hundredth of a point. The scoring for this competition wasn't just, hey, this guy had the best set. They were extremely precise. In fact, when it started, the comedians were awarded, and I'm reading this, from the judges' instructions. One point for each two-second burst of laughter. One point for each three seconds of sustained laughter. One point for each five seconds of sustained tittering, one point for each three seconds of sustained applause, two points for every three seconds of simultaneous applause and laughter. That's not all. The scorer may also award one to five points for accumulated giggles, titters, chuckles, and abbreviated chortles. One extra point awarded for a tremendously obvious honor. And then Gil Krishner and I were separated by a hundredth of a point, and I won. And then Robin gave me a check, $500. I've been doing it like six, eight months, and that was just like, my God, you know, <laughs> yeah. wild. Yeah, yeah. So that's how I got there. So I'm assuming Robin Williams won the first competition, and that's why he presented the check to Dana. Did not. He came in second place. But the reason he was presenting this money is because Robin and fellow San Francisco comedians Jim Giovanni and Bill Rafferty were plucked out of the scene by George Schlatter to be cast members in the new Laugh-In. And that only lasted six episodes. 
And then Robin got cast in The Richard Pryor Show. That only lasted a few episodes. And then he did a couple sitcoms, but nothing came of it. Until in 1978, he got a guest star on a show called Happy Days, where he played an alien. Good evening, Atlantic. Are you Bridgie Cunningham? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's me. Is this your house? Uh Uh-huh. Mm-mm-mm-mm. Wait a minute, who are you? I am Mark from Mark. So ABC creates a spin-off series that showcases Robin's talents called Mork and Mindy. That's a hit. Next thing you know, he's on the cover of Newsweek. Robin becomes a movie star, eventually wins an Oscar, and throughout his career never stops performing stand-up and becomes a national comedic icon. All kick-started at the Holy City Zoo. And around this time, another folk music club called The Other Cafe starts doing comedy a couple nights a week. You feel like a little kid, hey, young lady, look at me. Parents do this, isn't it? And my dad would say, Dana, look at me. I'd say, Dad, kind of conceited. <laughs> and he talked in sound effects. Did your dad make noises when he talked? He'd go, kids, hey, you want to go to the store, pick up some milk, and bring it back home, huh? Remember that? That was a young Dana Carvey at the other cafe. The location of that club, although it was not by design, um, it was on the corner of two streets, Carl and Cole, in the Haight-Ashbury district of San Francisco. That's the voice of Paula Poundstone. If it had been down on Haight Street, the foot traffic going by would have been distracting. The background for the stage was a um, a huge plate glass window. So I could see people, you know, when they were walking down the street, so I would talk to them through the window. But it afforded me this possibility of uh, finding stuff to work with. People would walk by this giant window, and the whole audience could see, and so you were forced to improvise with people. And here's Dana Carvey again. There was a lesbian bar down the block, and all these kids went and harassed these lesbians. And I'm just on doing my set, and out in the street is a fistfight. So you were the commentator. Yeah, and I was the commentator. So it was the most I ever killed. There was a tone in the other cafe. It was a hippie kind of a place in a way that I really love. It was, uh, you know, the kind of place that my might um, serve a, you know, a whole wheat muffin. Whereas the, 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 it had food, the, the zoo didn't have food. In fact, it would even, the idea of eating in the Holy City Zoo was really kind of a gross thought. One of the first jobs I had that um, I think was really formative for me, the other cafe used to hire me to host their open mic night. And so I would run out on of, a Monday. Or, it was a Wednesday. Wednesday. Okay. I would run out of material within the first few minutes. And after that, I just flew by the seat of my pants. It's really how I learned to do the crowd to, work? to work the way I work now. Oh, yeah. Wow. And I also ate on stage. That was a big thing. Because I had a day job. I, I had no break. I had no time. I had no money. So um, on my way to the club that night, I would buy a box of Pop Tarts. And uh, or a box or a bag of Oreos. Is that where or the pop tarts? That is where from? the pop tarts thing came from. I uh, I actually eat a box of pop tarts a day. I'm not proud of that. It's a way that back to my thing you see right here. Look, they have the tart right on the cover with the cross section. So you can see all the rich, tasty goodness right there. 
Well, I'm only human for Christ's sakes. And look at this, you guys. Inside, let me just show you. Inside, there are three pouches of two. This is what happens to me. I open the first pouch and I eat one tart and I enjoy it very much, as naturally I would. And I feel, well, I have to eat the second one or it will go stale. Well, now I've eaten two and it's no longer just a snack, it's a meal. I figure I may as well eat two more. And now joining the Holy City Zoo and the other cafe, we have the punchline. So the punchline, when they put it in, they had no, the bar was disgusting. Here was a dressing room. That's comedian Bobby Slayton. So what they did, on the nights that they didn't have comedy, they turned it into a dance club called X's. And after the punchline, sometimes they'd have a midnight show and they'd have dancing. You know, Sunday night was X's, Friday, Saturday was a punchline. And the punchline basically was Tuesday through Saturday. It became Tuesday through Saturday. And John Fox had it. You know, and it was run by the, the Foxes who were the, you know, business people. And, you know, you had to behave. You know, you, it was like you're at, da- you're at work with dad. Here's Dana Gould again. But the punchline was owned by Bill Graham. Right. Who you would see there. Right. You know, Bill Graham is the, you know, the and Graham. right around the corner from his other music club, right? Yes. Yeah. 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 And, and, and it's Bill Graham. You know, he's it's the, the, <laughs> right. the Grand Moff Tarkin of, 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 of promoters. Yeah, yeah. And when Bill Graham came in and bought the club, the word was he put $250,000 into the punchline alone, which is a lot at the time. Put in a beautiful bar. Put in a wall, a beautiful dressing room. Improve the bathrooms. You know, pictures of the comics up on the walls. A beautiful backdrop, a nice curtain. Well, it seemed to me that the punchline, for, for starters, was fancy. Here's comedian Mark Pitta. It had gold uh, railings. It had the cushy seats. It had a mural. It was fancy. Whereas the zoo was a dungeon that sold beer and wine. I really started the punchline. The Holy City Zoo gave me my first break, but where I really learned and got my chops was the punchline. Our next performer, the New York Post, described his act as sexist, racist, abrasive, yet endearing. Would you please help welcome the pit bull of comedy, Bobby Slayton. movie West Side Story. I'm sure it's a classic film. Everybody's seen it. Remember this scene? I never understood this. Remember the scene in West Side Story where the white guy is running through Spanish Harlem yelling out, Maria! Only one woman comes to the window. Anyway, let me tell you something. You're going to see a lot of different kinds of comedians up here, but as far as I'm concerned, you got to remember one thing, and that's if you can't laugh at yourself, make fun of other people. Thanks. Enjoy the rest of the show. Now, San Francisco is gaining a reputation nationally as a comedy destination. In fact, in the March 79 issue of Playboy magazine, there's an article written by Craig Vetter about this comedy renaissance. I was in Milwaukee at the time. This is comedian Will Durst. And I read the article, and then they had a little uh, thing about uh, the Holy City Zoo. And called it a comedy clubhouse. And, and just hearing about a place that was... Seven days a week, you could do comedy. So I came out to San Francisco, pretty much based on that little article. It just sounded like heaven. Please welcome to the stage, ladies and gentlemen, with a warm San Francisco round of applause, Mr. Will Dirt. You know what scared me about Reagan being shot? 
He didn't know he was shot. <laughs> Think about that. Now, I don't know about you, but I'd like a president with a central nervous system. July 11th, 1981. Here's Mark Pitta. That was the first comedy day. That was just us saying, thank you, San Francisco, for supporting comedy. Here's a free show that starts at noon and ends at 5 p.m., and we're going to give you the best of San Francisco and some out-of-town acts. And it was it was a dark time for San Francisco. We had... Jonestown. Jonestown and the Moscone and Milk and the whole thing. This big gray cloud just kind of hanging over the Late the 70s were a bitch. Here's Will Durst again, joined by his wife, Debbie Durst. Yeah, it was just very sad. And it was like, well, what can we do? We're comedians. We've got to do something to help the town. And at the time, Bill Graham was doing these things called Day on the Green, where there were big concerts he would put on. They were outdoor concerts. And I says, well, why can't we put on an outdoor concert with comedy, with comedians, and not charge any money and just say, hey, there's a show. Please come and laugh. So that's kind of how Comedy Day started. At their peak, they had 60,000 people. People come sleep out on chairs the night before trying to get the good you know, spot uh, to watch the show from. And it went on for hours. Here's Paula Poundstone uh, and, uh, again. I think the first year I was there, I wasn't invited. And frankly, I was very jealous and uh, felt left out. And uh, so I didn't go, you know, wasn't going to go. Uh, so instead I was, I think, I think I went to bed, you know. And from my bedroom inside a house, I could hear the crowd and... Robin Williams went on. That's why I could hear the crowd, because Robin Williams went on. That's why you need Daddy. <laughs> oh, no. Well, look at this. This is incredible. It's like laugh stock. <laughs> Don't take the blue Segway. Please be careful. The owner of the macrame Volkswagen, it's unraveling. Please don't buy jokes from the comedians. There's some bad jokes going around. Be careful, people. There's a baby born out there. I don't know, his name is, where are you from? Seriously, help us now. Look at this, there's miles and miles of people going, is that Mark? <laughs> easy, easy, boy. So Andrew, this is why we're doing this episode. We have this city that has a annual comedy day. It has this annual comedy competition. It's where Robin Williams bursts onto the scene. It has the punchline. It has the other cafe. And it all started with this little 78-seat clubhouse called the Holy City Zoo. And what was the other club you mentioned? The fourth club, Cobbs, is just about to open. And all of these elements converged to create this comedy breeding ground that gave us so many comedians. We could do an entire season focusing on the comics that just came out of San Francisco at this time. I'll probably do something stupid like buying a fast car. Because I'm a man and I'm an idiot. I go to the lot, the testosterone just takes over. This is Kevin Pollack, who we heard talking earlier with Dana Carvey. Yeah, and he's a great impressionist, comedian, and also, now we know, actor. He's had an amazing career. Yeah, he's, he's in Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. How uh, fast does this car go? 
Oh, really? Where's the fast car? Over there? Over there? <laughs> I drive too fast. I get pulled over for speeding. It happens all the time. Usually, I can weasel out of a ticket because I do impressions. So I'll be driving, I'll be speeding. Cop pulls me over. He'll come with a window. Ah, oh, jeez, was I speeding? <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> I, I guess I was looking at the odometer. <laughs> Jesus, what a putz. Dana, who were some of the legendary San Francisco comics from that era? Larry Bubbles Brown. I've been kind of depressed lately. I know I mask it well, but uh, I'm getting old. I turned 26 a couple months ago. I'm making little observations about life as I head in my twilight years. Like, if you don't get laid a lot when you're young, you don't get laid a lot when you're old. And I uh, figured that out by myself. And uh, bitter, oh, a tad. But uh, I don't do real well with women. Uh, I'll tell you the kind of women I hang out with. The most romantic thing a woman ever said to me in bed was, I hope you're not a cop. Kind of like... A guy named Warren Thomas, who's since passed away. The world is nuts. Supreme Court is crazy. We got 80-year-old guys who can't get hard-ons telling women what to do with their bodies. You figure this out. Supreme Court. Where's Judge Wapner when you need him? Of course, the pro-lifers claim now that life starts in the male scrotum after two Budweiser, so they're getting really... Stephen Pearl. Country music. Music to sleep with your sister by, man. Barry Sobel. You know, I, I miss Howard Cosell, because when he announced on ABC, he was sometimes, he was cold. He was Ice World. Oh, he was cold. A few years ago, this is a true story. In the World Series, someone's mom died before game time. Cosell mentioned this all throughout the game. How this guy's mom passed away. The Blanks, Three Rivers Stadium, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Tonight, the Pirates are down three big games to one. Oh, but there's no one further down than Buck Jackson's mother. Six feet under before game time here tonight. <laughs> The Pirates, desperately, trying to wage a comeback. But there's one person who won't come back. But Jackson's mother, just kicked the bucket. Gone to the, her magic number is zero. There, there, behind the Pirate dugout. Oh, dugout, but Jackson's mother won't get dug out. It's been a... It's been what I'd call a topsy-turvy series. Topsy or turvy, turvy or topsy. Autopsy! <laughs> there was one more element that really added uh, jet fuel to this San Francisco comedy boom, and that was a local radio host named Alex Bennett. <laughs> For those of you who wake up and hear paint dry, it's Alex Bennett. Come on now. <laughs> okay, Alex Bennett was a big catalyst and a big help in making comedy in the Bay Area what it was. I'm not saying it wouldn't have happened without Alex. Tremendous. But Alex was the guy that when I went on, he said, you know any other comedians? I'd like you to bring another comedian back on. And that's when I brought on Pollock and Dana. He wanted Robin, but Robin was impossible. It took like a year for Robin to come on the show. Robin... You think you're the first comedian to do Alex Bennett? I was the first comedian to do Alex Bennett. Not only was I the first comedian to do Alex Bennett, he'd only been on for a month or two at the most. And then, you know, Paula Poundstone, and then I'm trying to remember, A. Whitney Brown, you know, and then Bob Rubin, and the late Warren Thomas, and, and Barry Sobel, and later, I think, you know, Jake Johansson, it became a big thing. And then, when there's a big visiting comic in town, Richard Lewis, Alex would try to get every comic on that he could. 
plus Alex Bennett, also hosted this local stand-up television show in San Francisco called Comedy Tonight. Not to be confused with the Comedy Tonight, a stand-up show that came out of New York, hosted by Bill Bottoms. You know, whether it's performed in a nightclub or a theater, stand-up humor is a unique art form. Now, this entertainer has dazzled critics with her uncompromising characters in theaters all over the West Coast. So let's welcome a newcomer to the San Francisco comedy scene. Ladies and gentlemen, here is Whoopi Goldberg. Brother man, what's happening? Check this out, check this out. You know, cause I got the low down on this dude. You know, this E.T. Distasteful dude, baby. You know, and I got the real story, you know, cause I wrote the real thing, you know? But people, they don't really know about it, you know? Because check this out, E.T., I changed his name, baby. I call him Bleed T, like Blackula, you know? And he don't come back to no suburban-ass neighborhood. He lands in Oakland, you know? Where all the real black people are, you know what I'm talking about, baby? And don't nobody mess with him there, see? Because he look like everybody else, you know? But then there was a slew of comedians that came from Boston, and instead of going either to New York or to L.A., they went to San Francisco. And, uh, yeah, started, uh, you know, basically with open mic nights in Boston. I'm from Massachusetts. And a couple of guys had gone out to San Francisco to do the... Uh, Competition? Yeah. And back then, of course, no cell phones. And they would call the club at a certain time in the evening... Um, whether they were calling the uh, Comedy Connection at the Charles Playhouse. Um, I think it was mostly there. And all the comics would hover around the phone. And and one person would be talking to him, and then they'd put their hand over the phone and say, he just, you know, he says he's at the competition. He says he did good last night. And, and we were all just a Twitter. It, you know, it was like a away game for all the Boston comics. So I... I came up with the idea of taking a Greyhound bus to San Francisco. I was living in Boston. My my fr- my comedian friends in Boston were uh, Tom Kenny, Dan Spencer, and Paul Kozlowski. Uh, and then we heard like the San Francisco is this miraculous place. I did the San Francisco comedy competition, which was the thing that drew you out there. Like you could go out and be in this competition, and if you did well, then. You're a star in San Francisco. Well, that sounded good. Like literally in Boston, you're you're on stage competing with attention from a fight. Yeah, I, <laughs> you know, right, it's right, like. Right, right, right. But you know, Kenny Rogerson, the very very funny comedian, used to say like, you know, you go on stage in Boston, there's guys in the front row welding. <laughs> you know, it's Marine boot camp. It's it's Camp Lejeune. The the way people from Boston had to demand attention from the stage right by the time you got to san francisco it was they they you didn't need to do that it's like it's like training with ankle weights yeah that's exactly what that's a perfect analogy yeah that's exactly what it was the last thing about life that the more depressed you get you tend to attract people that are optimistic it's just the way life works it's nice but the problem that i have is i always attract that one person that's too optimistic i mean no matter how depressed you ever get everybody has that one 
astrology-obsessed, crystal-gazing, new-age friend. They come floating out of the woodwork whenever you're upset. You're trying to be depressed, they're always sitting there. Hey, funny face. Hey, sad clown. Hey, none of this. Be here. Be here. Yes, this is the hard part. This is called facing pain. Hello. This is the part where Dana has to hear good things about himself and he doesn't want to hear that. So many people want to love you. But you gotta get in touch. You've gotta take a great big swim in Lake U. Bobcat Goldthwait had moved to San Francisco because he did the San Francisco comedy competition and became a huge star. I lost my job. I lost my job. No, wait, wait. I didn't wait. I didn't really lose my job. I mean, I know, I know where it is still. Just when I go there, there's this new guy doing it. But I do remember a definitive moment when... Here's Bobcat talking with Kevin Pollack. You know, I started in Syracuse a little bit, but I got, really got started in Boston. And when I moved out to San Francisco, what changed for me was to see my name on a marquee and it meant that the people came out specifically to see me. They weren't there just for the comedy club. And that changed my life. I was like, oh, I guess I really am a comedian. Even though I've been doing it for some years at that point, that, that changed it. And one of the most remarkable comedians that migrated from Boston to San Francisco was Kevin Meany, who, by the way, took a job as a bartender at the Holy City Zoo. Thank you. Thank you. My name is Kevin Meany. Uh, thinking about changing my first name to Eeny. Thank you. <laughs> Eeny Meany, figure it out for yourselves, folks. Uh, parents' names are Miney and Mo. I have a little brother by the name of Teeny Meanie, <laughs> and I have an Aunt Jeannie. Good night, everybody. Thank you. <laughs> I'm so glad I have you right here. Thank God, my eye! I'm gonna poke my eye out. I don't believe it. My mother would say, you're doing that on purpose, putting the microphone in your eye. Why do you do things like that? You're like a crazy person. The other comedians aren't poking their eyes out. Why do you have to do that? One of these days, one of your crazy friends is gonna put a needle in that microphone. <laughs> and it's gonna be real funny, isn't it? Walking around with one eye. Why do you do this to your father and I? You're like a mental case on stage. I don't think you wanna see. You know, as Kevin uses his mom's voice to comment on his act during his act, something that was later used to great effect by Jim Gaffigan, except as a quiet voice. So to reiterate, you have a number of elements all converging at the same time. You have these four clubs, Cobbs, The Punchline, Other Cafe, Holy City Zoo. They're all paying. Plus, there's a number of gigs around San Francisco. And those are gigs that are for a week, and some of them are one-nighters. So there's a lot of money to be had for these comedians. Plus, you have a local radio guy that's promoting the scene. Plus, he also hosts a television show that you can get on. There's the comedy day, and then there's also the annual comedy competition. So it creates this very fertile environment where comedians, young comedians, can develop. And it seemed like every year, new comics would just burst out of this San Francisco scene. San Francisco is a little bit different because it was a little bit outside of the 80s comedy boom because there was a lot more original performers that were there. That's Margaret Cho. You know, I'm afraid I'm going to become my mother. 
with our yelling at me all the time about my fear of men. You are gay. You are so gay. You are a big lesbian, and you need to come out of the closet and just admit it because you are gay. You know, when I first think you're gay is when you're born, and I hold you in my arms, and I said, oh, she's so beautiful. She's so... What a dyke. What a big dyke. I know. I know. You so dykey. <laughs> Maybe one day you will grow up to be PE teacher. I don't know. <laughs> will Durst was headlining, and I believe as a middle, Rob Schneider. Southern California. Southern California is where the word dude comes from. I've watched the word dude develop over the years. It's turned into a word kind of like the Polynesian word aloha. You know, that's more than just one meaning. You can use it to say hello to people. Dude! It's also used to mean listen or come here. Dude! But its most important meaning, though, most important is you blew it. Dude. It can also mean, are you in the closet with a knife? Dude? And Ellen was the opener in, in that era. So I'm trying to get into this health thing. I'm flossing every day. That gum disease is scary, isn't it? Yeah. My aunt died from gum disease. She did accidentally. She got uh, two pieces of Wrigley's spearmint stuck on her eyelids. I couldn't open them up. She wandered onto some train tracks. Yeah. Train didn't hit her, but she stepped on a rusty nail, infected her foot. Doctors had to cut it off. She got real depressed about that and moved to Guam. Opened up a little gift boutique there, selling knickknacks. Went bankrupt in about six months. Anyway, she fell in love with this man she met while hitchhiking. And uh, I guess he loved her too. I don't really know. But he used to make fun of her missing foot all the time. She shot him. She was so sensitive about that missing foot. Turns out that he was married. His wife found her and beat the hell out of her. And then they got to talking and got to be real close friends and enjoyed doing things together every Saturday. One of their favorite things they enjoyed doing on Saturdays was to go swimming over in Caldwin's Pond in Hazelfield Park. It's in Guam. And they were swimming one Saturday. And, uh... Trudy and Yolanda, that was them. And it was real choppy, real windy. A storm was brewing. And Trudy called out, Better go! Storms are brewing! And she was always so helpful like that. And Yolanda said, Yeah! So they got out and started walking. And a pack of wild wolves attacked Aunt Yolanda and killed her. So that gum disease is nothing to mess around with. That's, uh... Things are starting to slightly change. Uh, one of the big four clubs, the other cafe, closes its doors. And an improv franchise comes into town, but that doesn't last long. Comedians are starting to take a page out of the Whoopi Goldberg playbook and create their own one-person shows. And four guys like really spearheaded this. Josh Kornbluth, Ed Krasnick, Rick Reynolds, and Rob Becker. First one was uh, Rob, Rob Becker, who probably had the most successful one, uh, defending the caveman. He started that at the uh, the Improv in San Francisco around 1990. And then he went to New York and had a long run on Broadway, and now he's retired up in Marin County and has no desire to ever do stand up again. I just saw him a couple years ago. Rick Reynolds had the I think he had the second uh, sh uh, one man show, uh, Only the Truth Is Funny, and that went really well. He was. I think he told me he was making 70000 a week doing a big theater here. At birth, 
We're yanked from a warm, safe place and thrust into a world we have no way of comprehending. Childhood is a constant routine of punishment and confusion. Hell, we're depressed and misunderstood as teenagers and then frightened and unprepared as we become adults. In midlife, we watch as our youth slowly slips away, our dreams for greatness becoming pathetic memories. Old age brings loneliness, infirmity, and the constant fear of death. Hi, I'm Rick Reynolds. Thank you very much for coming. Well, what was what was different about Rick's show that I think people, uh, the alternative scene people maybe responded to was the confessional aspect of it. This is comedian Greg Barron. His show was dark, and he encouraged you to leave your marriage if you didn't uh, like it. And uh, and he talked about his family in a way that like only Dana Gould was doing. So it made sense when Dana Gould then went down the one man show path. You know, because Dana was sort of, in my mind, the sort of godfather of alternative comedy. Like, he was the one that we all looked up to when we started. You know, because he would come and talk about his sad Christmases with his family. And, and it was dark, and people were like, wow. I quit my day job in 84, and I kept, I was making enough money to live. And just every year, the money went up and up and up. And then 91 was the first year it went down. But I think the guys on the East Coast, a year before... I noticed it going down. I hear a lot of people on the East Coast are telling me, man, it's really getting bad back here. We're not getting work. It's, and then 92 and 93, it really went down. Just as stand-up in San Francisco begins to contract, there's a new generation of comics trying to make their way through these clubs. Blaine Kapach, Tony Kameen, Ron Lynch, Brian Posehn, Greg Barrent, Laura Milligan, Mark Marin even came up there, and Patton Oswalt. I had been doing comedy at that point four years, pretty much nonstop, from 88 to 92. This is a clip of Patton Oswalt on Off Camera with Sam Jones. Working the road, and I became a really, really good road comedian. I could do reliable, um, funny, instantly forgettable, just... This stuff works. I knew the mechanics of it. I knew the grammar of it. I knew the rhythm of it. But there was nothing of me in it. There was nothing personal. There was nothing I was about. I've got to do well. I've got to earn a paycheck. I've got to be this reliable person. Then I go to San Francisco in the summer of 92. I've moved there. And I'm like, I kill on the road. I'm going to go in this little holy city zoo. I've only got to do five minutes. Oh, my God. The kid's in town. Here we go, man. I'm going to blow this room away. And I went up and I did the A that always worked in front of, and I just watched the whole show before me. And it was like Greg Proops, uh, Laura Milligan, Lankin Earl, like these people that were, um, I'd never seen them before. I'm like, oh my God, this is the funniest I've ever seen. I can't wait for them to see me kill. And I go up and they didn't boo me or anything, but it was just this room full of genuinely creative people trying to push the envelope going, well, yeah, of course, that yes, of course that works, that's fine. But like not laughing because I was pan I was panicking because I'm like, why don't why aren't I on that same level? Don't they know that I I've headlined cranberries in West Virginia? How dare <laughs> they? You know, I walked across the street from the Holy City Zoo to the Taiwan restaurant on Clement Street. It had my notebook. I tore out all the pages, all the jokes that I had, put it in the trash, and I just wrote May May fifth, nineteen ninety two, upper right hand corner, and just started writing new. Sh 
I think we all have very um, probably uh, tinted, uh, probably not entirely accurate memories of that time. Because? Um, I don't know, because you romanticize your mm-hmm. youth a little bit. Um, uh, but we did have fun. San Francisco, we have a pedigree here, and people who know the comedy history of of the Hungry Eye and Enrico's and all of that. You know, this is the home base and where Lenny made his mark and Phyllis Diller and the Smothers Brothers and, you know. A year and four months after Patton Oswalt's comedic epiphany at the Holy City Zoo, it closed. This is 93. It was really going bad and the zoo went under. They did a 48-hour show. It started on uh, Sunday afternoon and ran till two o'clock on Monday night or Tuesday morning. And Jeremy Kramer hosted the entire show without a break. And David Feldman and I went on as uh, this character we did. We were the second to the last act. And then he brought up Will Durst, who owned the club at the time. And Durst did his show. And uh, I think Jeremy started crying and got in a cab and left. But he did 48 hours. I got the microphone and gave it to Ron Lynch. At one point, I went to the... I went to the bathroom and cried. You know, I felt that I just felt so. I just thought, God, this comedy thing is over. A decades-old comedy club in San Francisco is now facing an uncertain future. KPXY's Wilson Walker on how an award-winning comedian is joining the fight to save it. What does the future hold for the punchline? A 41-year-old comedy institution set to lose its Battery Street lease in August. And what can Dave Chappelle do about it? Uh, I'm, I'm here in town playing the punchline, actually. Uh, there's still tickets available. Like, I love music. Like, can you imagine a life without music? be a miserable life, right? But a life without laughter, I would die. At the time of this recording, the fate of the punchline remains unclear, but this is clear. Stand-up comedy still exists in San Francisco. They still have the competition every year. They still have Comedy Day. They've had Sketch Fest there since 2002. Comedy Central hosts its Cluster Fest stand-up festival there. Yeah, so it seems like going all the way back to the 50s with Mortsall up until today, San Francisco has been a great place to develop as a comedian. Yes, there's been some ups and downs, and yes, there are other cities, some of which we're going to talk about this season, but there was something undeniable happening in San Francisco. Exactly. And I believe that still will continue, even though the venues will probably change. I'm going to leave you now with Robin Williams performing at San Francisco's Punchline. I don't know. You ever think that God might get stoned? Look, look at it like, you know, a strange thing. If you look at a platypus, I think you might think that God might be stoned. <laughs> think that God's up there in heaven going, okay, let's take a beaver. Let's put on a duck's bill, okay? <laughs> hey, what are you gonna do? I'm God. Okay. Uh, it's a mammal, but it lays eggs. <laughs> what the hell? Hey, Darwin. Okay, there you go. Uh, then... hey. oh, truck. How are you doing? You're a truck driving man. Better get on with it now. I think we've done enough. Now you look at me like. No, no, shh. You see, it's not my night. 
There's someone very special, a young man. A fabulous young... No. <laughs> someone I met that I think is very special. <laughs> yeah, get off it. Come on now. He won the San Francisco comedy competition. He... car, though. That's uh, uh, a competition that I was in uh, 10, 12 years ago. took second, so I guess... You see, boys and girls, you can fuck up and still do well. of stand-up is written and produced by Wayne Fetterman and me, Andrew Stephen. Executive produced by Jeff Umbro and The Podglomerate. You can find more of their podcasts at thepodglomerate.com. Special thanks, first and foremost, to Mark Pitta. We also want to say thank you to Ed Krasnick, Greg Berendt, Larry Bubbles Brown, Margaret Cho, Will and Debbie Durst, who are actually the now owners of the Holy City Zoo brand, and continue to help put on Comedy Day every year in San Francisco. Dana Gould, you can see him and Bobcat Goldthwaite on tour together, or check out his podcast, The Dana Gold Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Kevin Pollock, Mark Miller, Paula Poundstone, who also has a great podcast, Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone, Bobby Slayton, Barry Weintraub, and the Abraham Comedy Archives. Some of the music in this episode was by Breakmaster Cylinder. And we also wanted to say thank you to Bob Rubin and Jeff Bolt just for being great. Please follow the show on Twitter at Hist of Standup and thehistoryofstandup.com. And if you like this show, please tell a friend, share an episode, and leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks so much. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe.